Rough year for your favorite NFL team? Join me, Danny Heifetz, along with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Krolbeck on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, where we talk about all things NFL Draft, and more importantly, how to fix your mediocre team. Check out the Ringer NFL Draft Show every Tuesday and Thursday. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Today's episode. The case against Donald Trump. So there's a line in my favorite law movie, A Few Good Men, where Kevin Bacon opens his prosecution by saying, the facts of the case are these, and they are undisputed. And that movie really made me want to become a lawyer. I did not end up becoming a lawyer, but this seems like a good moment to quote Mr. Bacon, because underneath all the hubbub, this case isn't very complicated. The facts of the case are these, and they are undisputed, at least undisputed by just about everybody paying close attention. Donald Trump slept with Stormy Daniels. Donald Trump's team instructed his lawyer, Michael Cohen, to pay her hush money. Then they paid back Michael Cohen in several installments, which were recorded in the business as ordinary legal fees. This deal was struck during the heat of a razor-tight presidential election in 2016. Those are the pieces of the case, and they are basically undisputed. What is disputed is the law. What law did this break? And all those facts that I just recited, is that all that happened? Or is there some other smoking gun that turns what might ordinarily be a business fraud misdemeanor into a felony? On Tuesday, Donald Trump pled not guilty to 34 charges, 11 counts for false invoices, 11 for false checks and check stubs, 12 for false general ledger entries. That indictment has now been unsealed. I told you that when it would be unsealed, we'd have a legal expert on to talk about it. And today, that's what's happening. But here's what's so interesting to me. Legal experts do not agree about the strength of this indictment. On one side, a lot of lawyers I've read and heard say, this case is a nothing burger. This case is a legal embarrassment. It is an inevitable win for Donald Trump. We are trying out an entirely new legal recipe on an ex-president. It is completely inappropriate. On the other side, there are people like today's guest, Norman Eisen. Eisen says, actually, the ex-president has something to worry about. He is a lawyer. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Eisen was also, this is relevant, a co-counsel for the House Judiciary Committee during the first impeachment and trial of Donald Trump. Eisen and I talk about the indictment, the strength of Alvin Bragg's case and why the naysayers are, according to Eisen, and you will hear us push back and forth a bit, why he thinks the naysayers are dead wrong. Of course, as we talked about last week, the indictment of an ex-president who is also running for president, who is also now the faraway frontrunner for the Republican nomination, this is not just a legal story. This is a politics story. And so we've got the great political reporter, Dave Weigel, from Semaphore on the second half of the show to talk politics. No big wind-up from me today. Politics and law are, I might as well be blunt and honest about this, interests of mine. But this is not my bag. This is not my expertise. In all honesty, I am just out there, probably like the rest of you, just reading and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. 
Thank you as always for listening, trusting me to make plain that which is sometimes not particularly plain, even when the facts are undisputed. I'm Derek Thompson, and this is Plain English. Norman Eisen, welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you. Norm, you just published a big piece in the New York Times about this Trump indictment. And before we evaluate the strength of the case, what makes you and your co-author qualified to assess this indictment? Uh, well, um, um, you're testing my false modesty, Derek. Uh, <laughs> I'll start with my co-author, Karen Agnafilio, former chief deputy in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, you know, has worked on countless cases, including, as I'll explain, many cases that are actually very similar to this one, although it has unique aspects. The books and records charges and the campaign finance violations that uh, make those charges a felony um, have been charged often in New York State and books and records all the time by the Manhattan DA uh, under her supervision as the former chief deputy. Um, As for me, um, I am uh, one of the uh, only uh, living uh, American um, lawyers to have actually uh, charged Uh, a president with crimes and misdemeanors and then uh, put a president on trial. That's because uh, I was counsel in the impeachment, first impeachment of Donald Trump. It was high crimes and misdemeanors, not the low crimes and misdemeanors, but I investigated these identical uh, hush money claims as high crimes and misdemeanors. I know the evidence, I know the law, and I have been a criminal defense lawyer uh, doing criminal practice uh, and a scholar for uh, more than three decades. So those are the qualifications of Karen and myself. I think those qualifications absolutely suit. Thank you for pushing through uh, your own humility. Um, you've had a look at this indictment. False humility. False humility, False excuse humility. me, Norm. Before we get to your assessment of the indictment and the statement of facts, just give it to me plain. When you looked at this, What was important? What is D.A. Alvin Bragg charging Donald Trump with? Um, Well, he's charging him with uh, attempted interference in the 2016 election that was a precursor, as I wrote in the Times and in another CNN opinion piece that I uh, published uh, immediately after. Um, this is th- th- this 2016 conduct involving the hush money was a gateway drug for the attempted election interference uh, involving getting the president of y- Ukraine to uh, uh, attack uh, Joe Biden, at least the attempt in 2019. That was the subject of the impeachment, first impeachment, and then the massive election interference that constituted the attempted coup and insurrection 
following the 2020 election. Um, this was the gateway drug. And the, the way it's being prosecuted, you know, there's no crime on the books for pushing a gateway drug of democracy uh, to denial. But the way it's being prosecuted, as you always do, is to look for the specific crimes that were violated uh, when you have one of these assaults. Here, uh, Trump, um, it seems to me, powerful evidence that Trump created false books and records. He um, characterized hush money payments that were made uh, to uh, uh, to uh, Stormy Daniels as legal fees. Under New York law, you can't write in your corporate books and records that something is a legal fee if it's a hush money payment. That is a slam dunk New York crime, and it's a felony crime if you do it to hide another offense. And here it appears that there were campaign finance violations. Michael Cohen can't give a $130,000 uh, payment or loan to benefit the campaign. He pled guilty to that in federal court. Uh, there's state campaign finance violations. There's tax issues. So when you cover up or advance another crime, as happened here, that is a felony books and records violation. And of course, the reason, returning to my point, election interference, the reason for this Hush money payment was to benefit Trump's campaign. There's a ton of evidence of that, including that it came right after the Access Hollywood scandal. A second sex scandal might have killed Trump in an election that he only won by a little over 70,000 votes in three states anyhow. So Bragg's charges are righteous. They are not uh, petty New York misdemeanors and felonies. They're major democracy crimes, just like the ones that um, other prosecutors, state and federal, are looking at for 2020. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to some people who have made the opposite claim, which is that they worry that the that the indictment is not as strong as they were expecting. But before we get there, there's a, a couple numbers I want to run over that I got from your reporting, from your articles. There are 34 charges in this indictment, 11 counts for false invoices, 11 counts for false checks and check stubs, 12 counts for false general ledger entries. This is not the first time that DEA Alvin Bragg has indicted people on false record charges in his brief tenure as district attorney. Is that right? That is right. He's um, charged um, now with Trump 30 defendants in a little over a year with false books and records. Books and records are the meat and potatoes of uh, Manhattan DA and in general, New York DA charging. And for people who aren't lawyers, when, books and records, what, what are we talking about in plainer language here? You cannot create fake business records like the false checks and check stubs, the false invoices, the false uh, general ledger um, entries that um, say these hush money payments were um, legal fees. And the reason that we have that rule is that uh, precisely because um, this is um, uh, a badge of fraud and authorities want businesses to be honest to stop them. If you can create false books and records, then you can 
you're, you're on the royal road to all kinds of other frauds. So this is to prevent exactly what we have here, the kind of uh, wrongdoing that, you know, may have illegitimately changed an election. They stop it at the front end with books and records. It's charged frequently, not just there. I looked at, it's been charged thousands of times across New York. I did a table of, um, you know, 50 of the most comparable cases uh, over the past years. There's nothing unusual about a books and records charge in this situation. And there's nothing unusual about a books and records charge being bumped up to a felony, as is happening here, treated as a felony crime, because it covered up a campaign finance violation. Michael Cohen was not allowed to make a $130,000 payment, a $130,000 loan, however you characterize it, to benefit the Trump campaign. He pled guilty to it. The proof is powerful that Trump intended this um, as a payment that, but for the campaign, that's the legal test he never would have made. Uh, you know, it doesn't count on Michael Cohen's guilty plea or Michael Cohen's word. There's a lot of other proof of that uh, proposition. So uh, that is that is the book and rec- books and records crime here. I want to get your take on what the strongest and potentially weakest parts of this case are. But before we get there, just a really quick question. You mentioned that uh, the DA has brought this charge thousands of times over the last few years, 30 defendants um, on books and records just in the last 12 months alone. What is the DA's batting average on these kind of cases? Are we talking like 20%, 50%, 80% conviction rate? It, it, it's well over uh, 90, the high uh, 90s. I mean, I haven't done the analysis, uh, but, you know, we're talking about extremely rare cases where you don't get a conviction. I talk about them all, the successes and the failures uh, in my the uh, essays for Just Security have published a series of them really doing deep seven, doing deep, deep dives into the facts, the law. There's a big chronology in there of evidence and all of the different legal aspects and tables of these cases, both for books and records and specifically campaign finance prosecutions based on books and records and analogous statutes in New York and nationally. Let's, let's get right into that. The title of your essay is, quote, we finally know the case against Trump and it is strong. What is the strongest part of this case? Is it the abundant evidence? Is it the fact that Alvin Bragg and the DA's office is incredibly and routinely practiced in bringing these kind of cases to court? What, what in your mind in, in, and in the minds of audiences should people take away as the strongest piece of this case? The strongest piece of this case is that Trump did it. He paid hush money, lied about it in the books and records in order to benefit his campaign, violating campaign finance law, and he may have changed the outcome of the election. There's the theory of the case in one sentence. It is a strong case. Bragg has the wind at his back. It is not a slam dunk. Um, there's some uh, legal arguments that are going to be hotly contested. I believe Bragg has the better of those legal arguments, and I believe that um, he is going to succeed 
in getting this case before a jury. And while Trump is presumed innocent, and as a lawyer who for most of my career has been a criminal defense lawyer until Congress hired me to prosecute Trump, um, I take that presumption very seriously. But to me, it looks like a powerful case. Yeah. So let's say that Alvin Bragg, you know, let's say you are advising Bragg's team and they come to you and they say, we want to know what the most likely obstacle is for actually getting a conviction in this case. What is the weakest part of this case? What's the biggest unknown that they should be anxious about going into this trial? Derek, do you know you are the first person to ask me the question in that form of the hundreds of questions that I have been asked about this case since it heated up in the past weeks on TV, on podcasts, radio, reporters, my editors, all these publications I've done. Um, So I think the weakest, some people say the weakest part of the case is Michael Cohen, my friend. I got to know him because I investigated the same stuff during impeachment. He was one of the first people I talked to about the hush money and associated proof. Uh, But Michael Cohen, having read the statement of facts, I believe is going to be 5% of this case or less. They have built a case that will allow um, a very strong cross-examination of Michael Cohen, and it's going to be a vibrant one. And he's going, you know, uh, I think he's going to do well, but to the extent um, the jury sees that cross-examination, what they've done, that's why Bragg, I think, took a year to build this case. He's built a case that includes Michael, but has a much broader sweep. So I don't agree with the people who say Michael is the weakest part of the case. The, there's been a fair amount of conventional wisdom that the um, novelty of, um, of, of, of applying the well-recognized law that allows Bragg to do a books and records case about campaign finance violations, about state um, campaign law all of which has been done before successfully. And I wrote about them in the New York Times again and again and again. That's been prosecuted, but never against a federal president. Um, uh, I should say a federal candidate in applying New York state law. That's right. I think I read from your reporting. In, from your reporting, I read that the uh, the Brooklyn DA convicted an assemblyman, Clarence Norman, for soliciting illegal campaign contributions and for felony falsification on business records. That, however, and this is getting into the the point of disagreement here, not between you and me, but between you and other legal scholars. Um, you know, this is this is obviously a local race. This is a a a, a New York assemblyman. But the people who disagree with this case, and I, I've read several essays of disagreement. Um, the school of thought there, and I think it was probably maybe best articulated by uh, Richard Hassan, who is a UCLA legal scholar, wrote this up in Slate. I'm just going to quote to you and get your response. Quote, based on what I've seen so far, the decision to, tar- to charge Donald Trump with felonies in New York state is a mistake, both legally and politically. He continues, quote, it is far from clear that Trump could be liable for state campaign finance crimes as a federal candidate. 
Moreover, state prosecutors may be precluded from prosecuting federal candidates for federal crimes under a rule called preemption, meaning they have to be brought by federal authorities rather than state authorities. Alvin Bragg is a state authority. He is not a federal authority. And so under the preemption rule, they could maybe throw this case out or lose it. Could you define preemption for us? Just define preemption as you understand it and tell me why you're less concerned that preemption could spoil this case. So, Derek, we there's two issues that, that I think are, where I think Bragg has the better of the argument, but they're the two most contested, let's not say weakest, but they'll be the two most contested um, legal issues, and then Cohen will be the most contested factual issue. And it, a second contested factual issue will be um, Trump's intent. Did Would he have done this? but for the campaign. I think there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So those are probably three and four, those two factual issues. One and two we talked about. And it's not just Clarence Norman. It's a wide array of political figures in New York who've been prosecuted. Books and records, New York State campaign finance violations, convictions obtained, um, but they were state figures. So applying that state law to a president is one. You're raising the other um, contested issue in this case, which is Bragg has said he's going to do belt and suspenders. He's going to apply state law and federal law. Can a state prosecutor apply federal law in a state prosecution? The answer to that question is preemption. And there is a doctrine, but it has exceptions that federal prosecution or that the prosecution of federal campaign finance matters has to be done in federal court by federal prosecutors. That's what it is, in other words, preempted, blocked off for state prosecutors. But here's the thing. The preemption doctrine is highly varied from um, issue to issue. And the preemption that applies to FICA, the um, federal campaign finance law statute, um, that is is as full of holes as Swiss cheese. And again, and I wrote about this in the New York Times, and the um, contestants are not going through case by case, just like on the state, they have to deal with Norman and the many other cases that I've itemized. State authorities have been allowed again and again under this very um, gap-ridden, exception-laden preemption doctrine on federal campaign finance issues to prosecute um, matters against individuals who are related to or connected to federal campaigns. And I linked to all those cases in the New York Times. Is there one that's exactly on point? No. Are, are they analogous? I believe so. And we will soon find out. But the brilliance of what Bragg has done is he's done belt and suspenders. He said, well, I'm going to try the state case. I'm going to try the federal campaign finance issue. He's not stopping there. He says, I'm also. He's raised the possibility in the documents he filed with the court that he's going to raise a tax issue here. 
there was a tax conspiracy. So it's belt, suspenders, and the tax is kind of like duct tape. Belt, suspenders, and duct tape here. He's leaving nothing to chance. That's as it should be, because as you asked me a few minutes ago, you know, this is a very powerful case, and I think Trump should be prosecuted for it. Thank God Bragg is doing it because the Donald Trump Bill Barr Justice Department, which should have done it, didn't do it. Last question before I let you go. Um, I read your piece. I'm listening to your arguments. I do find them compelling. I'm placing that alongside the fact that there's a lot of people writing at The Atlantic, where I work, writing in The New York Times, like David French, who are no fans of Trump, who are also lawyers, who are also legal experts, who have not come to your conclusion. In fact, they've come to the opposite conclusion. They are upset with Bragg and upset that the indictment is not as much of a slam dunk as they wished. I mean, Andrew McKay was just on CNN saying that he's disappointed by this indictment. In your view, what is it that they're fundamentally getting wrong if you're confident that this case is strong and they're confident that this case is weak? Well, where would we be without debates? Um, I think that they are um, at the most fundamental level misapprehending that this case is a very important democracy matter because it might have, out of all the cases we're considering, it might have changed the outcome of an election. I don't think that they're adequately accounting for, they they say, well, it's novel, but they haven't accounted for the many, it's not just the Norman case, the many times that a state prosecutor in New York has gone after um, uh, uh, books and records cases based on state law campaign finance violations, which we have here. Um, They um, are not accounting for, and state law allows that. State law doesn't say you can only um, uh, prosecute based on uh, state violations. It says um, if there's a false book and record in New York that, um, uh, and it's done for another, quote, unlawful purpose, different statutes use different words. It doesn't say, uh, uh, that the unlawful purpose has to be a state one. So this bump up is actually allowed by New York law. Why shouldn't you be able to prosecute a books and records case if there was a federal cover-up? That doesn't, um, you know, that, that, that doesn't, for the state law piece, there's no preemption. Then they're saying, well, but wait a minute, he's also bringing in federal crimes but they're not looking at all of the preemption cases and this, they don't, you know, haven't, I've done campaign finance of my prior watchdog group crew. We, you know, we've, I've done campaign finance work for decades. I advised President Obama on it as part of being his ethics czar in the White House. When you look at those preemption cases, it's not as clear cut as they say. So I think they're, and then they have hesitations about the facts They haven't investigated the hush money case like I have for almost a year in impeachment. They haven't sat with Michael Cohen again and again with his story never changing. And, uh, you know, some of them have not been practitioners. I've done these cases for 30 years, including in New York. So I did them all over the country. So uh, these these kinds of criminal cases. So um, for all those reasons, I respectfully disagree. But I love the debate. Bring it on. 
And, you know, I, uh, I link to some of their arguments, many of their arguments, all of the main arguments that were out there in my writings and then attempted to respond to them. Great. Norman Eisen, thank you very much. And we'll soon find out who's right, Derek. Thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. That was Norman Eisen. And next up, we have politics reporter at Semaphore, Dave Weigel. Dave Weigel, Semaphore, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, So first off, I just want your reaction to a historic day in American history, the Trump indictment. Uh, What did you see? What did you read that surprised you? What were your big takeaways? Oh, it's hard to have a surprise today because I think there have been like Star Wars movies analyzed from fewer angles than, than this indictment was, than this moment in New York was. Uh, I did, I did guess I got some amusement from George Santos showing up and then saying it was a media circus, which I think is the only, the only climate he ever moves in. <laughs> uh, but no, I, the, what was new was the indictment itself. And I, I feel that it, it, it was validating for people who have worried that while there are several ongoing investigations, which could lead to criminal charges against Trump, uh, this remains the one that is very hard to nail somebody for, for, for several reasons. Yes, there's 34 counts of uh, falsifying business records. There's Trump feeling guilty, but there's not really denial of uh, Michael Cohen paying off Stormy Daniels right before the 2016 election. I feel that every time that's in the news, it is generally bad for Trump and not good for him. Uh, But as a case that might, that might nail him. And we, we now know, uh, there's not much more to the indictment than this, and then we now uh, and we know that unless it's pushed, which probably there'd be an effort to, uh, Trump is not back in court until December. So there's going to be a whole ca- campaign primary season where this is hanging over Trump, and they're trying to dismiss it. Yeah, but uh, that's what I that's what I figured out. I mean, look, the rest of the media circus around this was uh, uh, was not new, and some of the hyperventilating about how. I'm not accusing you of hyperventilating. I mean, it is unprecedented for this to happen to a former president, but it's not unprecedented to happen to a politician. Like there, there have been crazier things I've seen ex governors uh, and ex members of Congress accused of and, and go to trial for. Uh, so that part of it, I feel like I'm missing like whatever whatever is in people's brains that makes them um, rip their gar- rend their garments and and and, and uh, disbelieve that this could happen to a president. I think, well, I don't know. <laughs> like sometimes politicians commit crimes. What do you got to do? Trump is next due in court in December. That is so far from now. That is the middle of the primary season. I mean, so much can happen between here and then. He could be indicted for one, two, three more crimes. How meaningful is it to you that the next time that he's due in court, we're going to be an entirely new reality in politics? Well, we had a dry run for this, which was the impeachment in 2019, rolling over in 2020. Uh, What it does among Republicans, this is much more tense than he was president, is say, we don't buy it. This is our our icon, our hero, our Caesar. We're not going to, and I'm using the word Caesar because I've read columns that compare to Caesar. Uh, We're not going to let these investigations stop him from from, uh, staying president or becoming president again. That's the Republican response. I think in the in the Republican primary uh, field, the response to this has been to uh, criticize 
the investigation and not talk about the contents uh, and try to move the conversation to something else. And it is if you've been watching Trump navigate the Republican Party for the last eight years and you wonder, are they ever going to get better at this? They're not going to get better at this. They have no strategy. They 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 hope that maybe Republican voters are convinced that he can't win again because he's so under duress. But that's not what they're saying. <laughs> they're kind of validating this idea that Trump is only being investigated and only being charged because he is the essential man who's going to take back America. And um, the attitude, I, I guess I would describe as if you know, any other Republican nominee would be less legitimate at this point, um, that just because they would have benefited from a political prosecution. Nobody's really contradicting that in this race. The exception of Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, he's the one Republican running for president. He's at w- between zero and one percent in polls, which I don't need to dismiss him as a person. He just he is. Uh, he said that Trump should be disqualified from running based on this. Uh, that is something that most Americans, according to the CNN poll, 60 percent of Americans agree with. Trump should be disqualified, shouldn't be running again. Uh, but only 20 percent of Republicans agree. And their thought leaders, whether they're running for president, they host TV shows, they write books, they write columns. Their attitude generally is, uh, yes, this is a pro- this, they, 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 they handle it basically the way that uh, very different for different circumstance. But the you know prosecutions of Dilma Rousseff and Lula in Brazil were handled. I don't want to get into the weeds there; not the same thing. But within uh, Lula's political ally uh, alliance on the left, Rousseff's allies, um, the thought was they're doing this to disqualify this person from becoming president. There is no legitimacy. Um, but look at Lula; he was a very popular president. Won sixty percent uh, of the vote in his first two wins, and 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 won forward fifty two percent last time. It, it hurt him. It hurt him to be seen as uh, legally exposed. And this is what I wanted to get at, because I do feel like the conventional wisdom that is solidifying right now is that this is good for Trump in the primaries and it is bad for him in the general election. And that is because a gap has opened up between the ideology of Republican supporters who are very firmly in his camp and the ideology, or at least the the uh, attitude toward Trump of the great American middle. Is there anything, whenever there's like a, a conventional wisdom that becomes really, really conventional, like there's always a little bit of me that's like, should we double check that? Are, are, we, are we sure it's true now that everyone is saying it? I'm not entirely sure that I can think of a reason why this conventional wisdom is, is wrong though. Do, do you have any pushback to this general idea that Trump will be sort of tailwinded by this indictment in the next nine months, but that once he, if he does win the nomination, it will have soured a lot of independents and moderates against him. Yeah, I, I'm glad you keep delineating who is talking about this, because in in Republican circles that, that don't know what to do with Trump, they say one thing that I think Sometimes they believe, sometimes they are trying to convince themselves of. Uh, and I, I went back to 2016. There are things Donald Trump was accused of that were going to be legal problems for him. Stormy Daniels, he paid to cover up. Uh, but you know, we knew that uh, Trump University was, was a legal problem. The fraud committed by Trump University. Hillary Clinton ran against it. Um, Republicans worried that it was real and that it would hurt him and he might lose the election. And then once he won the election, they said, well, okay, you can't actually... You can't touch him anymore. He's the president. Same thing with the the documents they took from Mar-a-Lago. Most most voters think that was bad. Uh, <laughs> that's not the, <laughs> old, bigger, the biggest issue in the planet for them. They most disagreed with Trump taking these documents from Mar-a-Lago when they first heard about it. Um, 
in Republican circles, it was uh, backfilling. Well, actually, if the president says anything, uh, takes anything, he's disclassified by his person. Um, it gets very weedsy and I think tedious if you're not super into this, uh, the constant defense of, of, of Donald Trump. Um, and you need to do it in the Republican Party because if he remembers, Republican voters, I think more importantly, remember, if you don't stand up for Trump in real time, or if it sounds like you're validating a criticism of him, you get punished for it. They are they are not out of this trap. And the, you could go down the list of Republicans, not just to vote for impeach Trump, but I covered lots of Republicans in primaries who, let's say, during the Access Hollywood tape, said he shouldn't have said that. Uh, and then four years later, <laughs> the fact that they criticized Trump was used against them, they lost a primary. That's It's a very self-preservation-focused uh, instinct going on for Republicans, and it is not coterminous with what the rest of the electorate thinks. That that remains their problem. It just uh, The one other thing I'd add is that Republicans, uh, 35%, let's say 35%, uh, maybe at this point, two thirds of Republican voters do believe that the election was stolen, that Trump actually won it. That's been declining over time. But most Republicans believe that. Well, it follows. If you think that Donald Trump won the last election, you don't get into questions like, is he unpopular? Um, are there people who don't like him? Um, is Does he need to change what he's doing to win? Does he need to run on this popular position instead of that unpopular position? You don't even have the conversation. You're like, well, no, he like really won. So we need to run Trump again, but control the electoral system. And I even saw today, I mean, Charles, this, uh, I was writing, I was in Wisconsin last week, writing about the Supreme Court race. Charlie Kirk, very influential conservative, leads Turning Point USA, you know, says matter-of-factly to his audience, well, this makes it harder to win Wisconsin 2024. 20, well, why would it? <laughs> Let's get, like, Wisconsin's close. There's going to be an election in 2024. Democrats are going to spend a lot of money. Republicans will spend a lot of money. What they're saying is, well, we all know that like Trump probably won the state last time, which he didn't. Uh, that Trump probably won, and he only lost it because of this chicanery uh, with absentee ballots, and and they're going to make it harder. What they're thinking of is, uh, for example, the conservative Supreme Court in Wisconsin after 2020 said, hey, by our interpretation of the law, you can't have drop boxes. The new liberal court might say, actually, you can. And if your belief is, well, Donald Trump won that election, but he stole. It was stolen from him because of drop boxes. Then, sure, you're going to say, "Dang, the drop boxes are back. We can't win." None of that is policy. None of that is about what you run on. None of that is the image you present to the voter. Who, and there are lots of them who uh, liked Trump the second time. There, I mean, there were millions more voters who didn't vote for him the first time, voted for him the second time. They don't care. <laughs> they don't want this stuff. This is not what they're voted for. For they, 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 they're compelled. Like, oh, maybe he was better at handling inflation. Maybe he was. Uh, we were safer and Russia was invading anybody. You're not even having the conversation. Just like he did everything right. Do it again. Control the courts. That's the one. And that is the, that's the dominant attitude in the party that, again, I mentioned one Republican who disagrees and he's polling between zero and 1%. Exactly. I mean, it's so interesting because Donald Trump has this reputation of Teflon Don and, you know, nothing gets to him and the Democrats keep shooting arrows and it keeps bouncing off of his exoskeleton. But in a larger sense, Donald Trump is not popular. This is a guy who lost the popular vote in 2016. I'm not saying he lost the election in a legal sense. He lost the popular vote. In 2018, they lost the midterms. In 2020, he lost the election. In 2022, a lot of his preferred candidates lost races that Republicans, moderate Republicans think they should have won. Indicting Donald Trump is popular if you poll it. And even half of Republicans, I think I'm getting this from your own reporting, say um, that paying to squash the Stormy Daniels story before the 2016 election was unethical. Half of Republicans think that the underlying facts 
in this case. Whether or not you agree with Alvin Bragg bringing the indictment, they think the underlying facts speak to an ethical behavior on the part of Trump. He's not popular in any majoritarian sense. This gets to New Hampshire. New Hampshire poll that just came out, which has Trump with 44% of the vote. The rest of the field is splitting the other 56% of the vote with, I think, DeSantis around like 29%. So it seems to me like we are headed for an absolute potential sequel of 2016, where Trump has under 50% support of the Republican Party, but the never Trump contingent splits the vote all the way to Super Tuesday, and we end up with Trump being nominated. Uh, How realistic does never Trump colon two, the sequel, seem to you at this point? You never, you mean never Trump, but that fails. I feel like that's, that's very likely. Uh, One, there, what, the, the the gas in the tank of Never Trump in 2016 was the idea that Donald Trump could not win. Uh, and what really hurt them was that Trump's best, uh, strongest competition once Rubio melted down was Ted Cruz. I do think, I mean, I, I think, and it's funny that Chris Christie's back campaigning in, against Trump. Had Chris Christie just laid off <laughs> Marco Rubio in a debate in New Hampshire, it's possible that it gets down to a Rubio versus Trump race. Rubio is weak in a lot of ways as a candidate, but who knows? Um, but that's gone. The idea, again, the idea that he cannot win is not s- sellable in, in, the, in the Republican Party right now. Uh, a good example is that Nikki Haley is running for president against Trump, wants to be the nominee, not him. Whatever we, one thinks about her running for VP, which, which I don't rule that out, but it's possible. Um, but she, her, the way she puts it is that we have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight elections. That is true. I mean, it, it, you could also say we lost the last election. Um, uh, I, it was, Chris Sununu will say we lost the last three elections. He That gets a little further. Trump lost. We lost the midterm. We, lo- we should, lost 2022 effectively. Um, he's not running yet. Um, but when he is polled, and there's a New Hampshire poll this week, the governor of New Hampshire who wins landslide re-election, not less and less, but he's been winning re-elections for, uh, winning elections for a year, for terms, I should say. Um, he is at 14% and Trump is way ahead. So mo- it, the, I feel that it's less what is going to happen to Trump ethically, uh, sorry, legally, what are Trump's ethics? For most Republican voters, the thought is, well, we know that already. and um, not just we think that uh, we're okay with him being morally um, morally compromised, but we now think, I'm speaking as the, the voice of the Republican voter, we now think that when he is attacked for something, it is because he's so effective. Um, it is that because they know he's going to take the presidency if they don't try to drag him down. That is not what Democrats will tell you. Uh, you can polygraph them. They honestly think Trump is a weaker nominee than uh, Nikki Haley. I mean, I'll, I'll talk. They'll talk on and off the record about this. Like, boy, we hope it's not Mike Pence. We hope it's not Nikki Haley. We hope it is somebody who's so unpopular that most voters say I can't possibly vote for him. That's not Republicans think. They don't. They they don't talk to Democrats. They don't think that's true. Uh, they think everything Trump absorbs is because Democrats are so worried about him that they want him to, to go. And so you can get into the nitty gritty of all these cases. And they're just going to say, like, well, you're only doing that because we, you're trying to sack our quarterback. Um, that's the, that is the attitude. It does seem possible to me, and maybe I'm just recapitulating what you said at the top of the interview, that this indictment is much more historic than it is important. 
Trump is the favorite to win the Republican nomination, and he will remain the favorite really whether or not he's indicted. He is, after he wins, say above 50% chance of winning the Republican nomination, going to be in a really tough race against an incumbent president, the contours of which will be shaped by a bunch of things that you and I can't really predict. Maybe we have recession in 2024. Maybe there's an invasion of Iran or something, or Iran evades a neighbor, like just some craziness out of the Middle East that can't even possibly be predicted. But we, we simply an- enter sort of the, the jambalaya of 2024 politics that are, that are difficult to, to predict. And that, you know, fundamentally, the indictment, while it is, it is enormous news, doesn't actually change the contours of the election that much. Uh, is, is there something to that? Yeah, well, the essential fact about Biden is that he is he's very old. He's in his 80s. He uh, he benefits when he's not making news. So this is um, I saw some people making attacking New York Times today as they as they do <laughs> for just saying, oh, it's a problem. Like the White House is trying to get his message out there. And we're talking about Trump instead. It's like, well, it's not really a problem for them. Like when people are not thinking that much about Joe Biden, um, Biden does not suffer. Uh, like the idea that you need to have the president fixed in your mind, you're not going to vote for him, I think is based on nothing. It is, it is a, well, I think it's based on media (laughs) self-reflection. Might it be true for the primary in a way that it isn't for the general? Um, I don't know. This is the perfect sort of contrast to draw. It does seem like Trump's ability to get and hold attention is useful as a weapon against Ron DeSantis specifically, but it's not necessarily useful as a weapon against Joe Biden specifically. Yes. Yeah. So that, uh, that, that's a very, Good way of putting it. I think it hurts him. It, it overall uh, hurts the GOP and helps Joe Biden when the conversation is what Trump wants it to be about. I mean, I, I an example I think about a lot is that uh, Trump's administration like had anti-trans policies. It it it, it opposed critical race theory, opposed this, uh, the 1619 project. It did so. Memos from the White House. Trump would criticize it, but when Trump was doing it, sixty uh, percent of the country said, "I don't like this guy. I don't care." Trump was gone. And then in 2021, there were these elections in Virginia and Republicans were like, well, we need, what we really need to do is get rid of the 1619 project uh, and these like gender stuff in the schools. And without the face of Trump, it, it kind of sold. It got over. A lot of voters said, I don't like that. I'm a Democrat, but that sounds bad to me. When Trump reappears, um, the, the funnel that he builds around himself to get the attention, it polarizes things. And there's, um, I'm blanking on the exact political scientist. Ezra Klein, years ago from New Yorker, kind of did a summary of it. Well, like, political science is pretty clear. Like, when a president, even if he's popular, starts talking about something, it now polarizes. Only the partisans agree with the president. When he's, he's an unpopular president, unpopular figure, it polarizes, and most people are like, I don't agree with that. I mean, I feel like it very clearly, like we had in 2022, Republicans running very Virginia-like campaigns where they could, but Trump was back, and Trump was campaigning everywhere, and Trump was saying, you know, turning rallies into rambling about 2020. And people said, I don't like that guy. <laughs> and they like voted for Democrats. That's that's like the that's it's so weird about the last three, two years. It's just the disbelief that 2020 was real, and that the polls are real, um, has persisted even after the midterm, which showed actually the polls are pretty, pretty right. Um, and there was a month, I would say, because uh, I, I was going to Republican you know, RNC meeting and the uh, Republican Governor Association, Republican Jewish Association, there was this kind of perestroika um, of, of Republicans saying, "Hey, whatever we think of this guy, like he can't win. We need like somebody electable." 
And then that faded because we got further from the midterms and Republicans were like, well, I don't know. Like, that's that, that was a fluky election. <laughs> like, we know that Trump can win. Let's go back to him. My last question for you is, you know, I, I wrote down a note as you were talking where I said, you know, the GOP primary is more of a media primary, while the general election is more of a fundamentals election. I'm not saying fundamentals don't matter in the GOP primary. I'm not saying that media doesn't matter in the general, but they, uh, but it seems to me that there's something about attention politics that is more important for Republicans in their own primaries. And it makes me wonder, you're maybe a perfect person to ask this question to, because I've sort of been circling this point, especially in talking to some friends on Twitter. Um, uh, And the fact that I'm talking to them on Twitter makes the following question ironic. Does the GOP have like a touch grass problem? Like DeSantis talks so much about wokeness and Trump in his speech last night was talking about all of these issues that were an extremely online interpretation of the indictment. And a lot of people were saying, I don't even know how people who aren't constantly all over, you know, the subreddits and the truth social posts would even understand half the things that Trump is talking about. Like, Maybe, I guess there's two questions here. One is, do you agree with this premise that Republicans have this two online problem? And two, if you do agree with the premise, where does it come from? Uh, well, I, I generally think I agree. Uh, the roots are very long. Uh, this, the, the silent, Nixon's concept of the silent majority is now 54 years old. Uh, but at the same time, Nixon was talking about that and saying there's an East Coast elite media that doesn't understand the rage of the actual working American, um, that they, there was an effort to build up a more conservative alternative media. Uh, I think that has succeeded to the dreams of everyone who thought about it 50 years ago. Um, if I'm a Republican voter right now, and I talked to lots of voters, uh, both, you know, both parties or independents, but I talked to Republican voters, um, I'll ask them sometimes, like, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you, where do you get your information? I'm not demanding they read my stuff, like, where do you get it? And they have tuned out for years. Um, CNN, New York Times, AP, uh, they listen to, uh, I mentioned Charlie Kirk, they listen to ben, ben Shapiro, they listen to Joe Rogan to some extent. Um, and I honestly think it's good to have, like, a diverse media diet. I'm not allergic to listen to any, anything like that. Uh, but I do think it has led to, you, you mentioned touching grass. I think it's it happens pretty frequently. Like Republicans are bringing up a concept, and I've heard about it because I've listened to Charlie Kirk, and then I ask anyone in, in like my newsroom or like another person stuff like that says, paying attention to politics. Do you know what that means? They don't know. It it is so obscure they don't know. Uh, this happens on the left, but the media infrastructure on the left. I mean, people have tried uh, to start a left wing media company that you need instead of you know, Air, Air America. You can read that instead of, or listen to that instead of l- watching CNN. It like, doesn't work. Like there still is a um, connective tissue between de- Democrats, liberals, and the establishment media. Uh, I saw it when I was at the post during the Trump years, like people subscribed more and they loved it. They would like thank it for what it was doing. Um, and it is still for most people, <laughs> I think information is getting more and more atomized all the time. But for most people, like, was it on the TV news that night is more determinative, um, like a, a, a thing that happened. Uh, you get, de- you get fewer co- code words. You're less aware of certain scandals. It takes, I mean, you saw this, I mentioned CRT and, uh, stuff that Trump talked about in 2020. It took like a year for people for that to get enough into the mainstream conversation through conservatives pushing it that, that there was a political constituency 
uh, to stop, you know, to, to take some race, race lessons out of school, et cetera. But it was very confusing to people for a very long time. I mean, you saw this with the, the groomer branding Republicans used for, uh, for gender issues. That still just sounds weird to a lot of people. And the idea is, yes, but if they unplug from the, you know, coma-inducing mainstream media and they see what's really going on, well, it probably like most people are not going to do that, not because they are ideologically attuned, but because they're busy and they don't care. Like, it needs to rise the level of, why is this thing so bad? And that's why I think, although it might be fading now, like, Democrats saying things like, we should defund police departments and put more resources into into something, uh, into uh, social welfare, that didn't really click until, like, crime went up. And people said, well, I remember Democrats saying that. But it took a lot. They didn't care that Democrats did, like, land acknowledgments, which they also do, which I think conservatives also find very silly and annoying. They don't care. Like, this is, this is like, the... The, the world people operate in, they would mostly would like po- politics to leave them alone and they get angry when it's not, either if it's because of government service is failing or because like something stupid is happening. But they generally don't care. And I think you're right. Republicans, um, Republicans at this point are so invested in alternative media that is trying to change the narrative that they often just they're three weeks or a year ahead of some on something that most people don't care about. I think that keeps happening. Um, I, mean, I, I, I and I think there's also some finally I say but there's some denial. This Wisconsin election last night, their Democrats said from the outset, "Hey, we're going to run on, uh, we'll keep abortion legal, and we're going to, um, you know, we believe in democracy, so we're going to revisit these maps and these voting rules." And Republicans had a couple messages, but they never came up with a great response to the abortion one. They just said like, "Well, that's that's a partisan distraction," and they had a lot of advertising about just the importance of a uh, non-partisan, unbiased court, a judge that they just came up with some stuff that just was a little too Mark Levin, like a little too conservative that didn't make, didn't appeal to somebody who says, you know what, actually, I'm kind of worried that abortion might be banned in Wisconsin. They never had an answer to that because they didn't think they needed one. It turned out they did. Like they can, like lots of Republicans can win elections in safer states without doing any of this stuff. But I feel like that too. I, I, I said the final thing. The other point I'd make is that like, a lot of states, there are no competitive politics anymore. Um, if you're in Missouri, you have a supermajority. If you are in Alabama, you have a supermajority. Um, and things can rocket through uh, there with no political consequence to the Republican Party whatsoever. I do think then when you gear up to like campaign in Wisconsin, you don't know what the hell people are talking about. <laughs> because like it's a different set of issues and a different set of concerns. And there are political consequences. You can like lose an election if you go too far right. The big irony to me from a demographic standpoint is that for a long time, we've been talking about how millennials and Gen Z leans left. And you'd think in terms of news diet that this is the demographic that would more likely rely on rabbit holes of the internet to get their news from. But it turns out that the most rabbit hold contingency in American politics is the right. And I know that some listeners who are more conservative are going to say, no, that's not true. The left has its own extremely online weirdness. Of course they do. But look at the president. Look at President Joe Biden. Is there anything extremely online about this guy? I mean, can you imagine Joe Biden doing like a land acknowledgement? This is not, this is not a, an, an internet poisoned mind. This is guy, this is someone who I think one of the benefits of the administration, frankly, is that they are, they seem to be almost optimally online. They seem to have an awareness of a lot of online discussions, but they don't fall into these rabbit holes that 
prey on this majority illusion that lots of people fall prey to online, where they say, I got 10,000 retweets for this message. Therefore, it is broadly popular from a majoritarian standpoint in the electorate. That is an illusion. It is a delusion that I think has gotten a lot of a certain parts of the, certainly the left, but, but but specifically the right in in this in this conversation, caught into thinking that certain positions are significantly more popular than they are. Dave, I know that we promised you that you could run at one thirty, Steve. If you can make a phone call, go make that phone call. Thank you so much for talking to us, and uh, we'll have you back soon. Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating, leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok. TikTok.